What you see before you is a graphic of the current sermon series called Theology Untangled. What we've asked of you is to ask your theological questions that have bothered you for years or that have puzzled you for years or that might be new questions. And we have gotten so many questions that if we were to take them each in turn, it would take us half a year to preach through all of them. So some of them we've condensed, some of them uh, we have split into two messages, and tonight is part two of of a question that you all have given, and the question is, are the five points of Calvinism biblical? Are the five points of Calvinism biblical? Now, Last week, we did the history of where did we get the five points of Calvinism, where did they come from, and we took up the first of the five points, which in the acronym TULIP is total depravity. So you must realize that this is part two, and that without part one, part two is not going to be as rich. So you must engage with part one. Uh, in order to fully get part two. So please go back on eternalcity.org, listen to part one, and, and we're going to jump in at the last four points. And so here's how we're going to answer this question. We're going to answer this question by seeking to answer four questions. Number one, again, what are the five points of Calvinism? Number two, what is the biblical grounding for ULIP? Unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, or the perseverance of the saints. And that number two is going to take the most time. It's going to take a lot of our time up. And then question three is, what should we do in response? We'll answer that question very quickly. And number four, what should or how should this understanding affect our attitude? We will also cover that question very quickly. So let's jump in with what are the five points of Calvinism. Here they are. In acronym form, this is almost always how you will see the five points of Calvinism displayed with the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Now, as you learned last week, uh, John Calvin did not come up with this summary of his view on salvation or what is theologically called soteriology. Okay? John Calvin did not come up with the five points of Calvinism. They were a response to what were called the remonstrance, which just means protests. And those protests were launched uh, by the Arminians, those followers of a man named Jacob Arminius, uh, a theologian. All that was flushed out last week. But what you need to know is that John Calvin did not come up with this on his own. He did not summarize his view of, of soteriology. And what we are getting here is simply, what is John Calvin's, or better yet, what is the Bible's view of how men and women are saved? Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God to come, saved from the penalty of our sin, which is hell, and saved from ourselves, which we are self-destructive by nature. Saved. So let's look at the biblical grounding now. So we've already answered question one. What What are the five points of Calvinism? There they are. And they are a response to the five protests of the Arminians or the remonstrance. And these are the answers to those five 
um, protests, if you will. So we did total depravity last week, and just as a reminder, total depravity is taught in the scriptures pervasively. It's all through the Bible. And it's the idea that when Adam fell in sin in Genesis 3, his fall was not isolated. It affected all of his posterity. Posterity just means those who came after him. So when Adam had children, and their children had children, and their children had children, that fall affected not just Adam, but it totally affected Adam and all of his descendants. Now, the the totality is not, you're not as bad as you could possibly be. Rather, you're totally affected in all of your personhood. Your mind, your emotion, your intellect, your will, and your body have all been affected by the fall in totality. Depravity, evil, brokenness, as C.S. Lewis would say, bentness, has got into every part of your personhood without exception. That's what total depravity means. The result of total depravity is that we run from God, we worship false gods, and we will not come to God on our own. Rather, we stiff arm Him and run from Him. That was last week. But that understanding of what our sin is is and does is essential for the ULIP. So keep in mind total depravity. All right, let's look at unconditional election. So you're you're able to have two definitions here, and they're very closely related. Definition one is going to show up on the screen right now. Definition two is in your GCC discussion guide. Every one of these points has a helpful definition. They're, They're closely related. All right, here it is. Unconditional election, what is it? God, before the foundation of the world, out of the mass of fallen humanity, that is important, out of the mass in total of fallen humanity, chose those whom he would save from the penalty of their sin. What does the unconditional mean? It's not based, his choosing is not based on anything in the person, but wholly based on God's good pleasure, purpose, and will. So there it is. Before the foundation of the world, God chose whom he would save, and he chose out of seeing fallen and broken and rebellious humanity, all of them at once, and before he created any of them, he chose some of them to save. And the others, he chose not to save. And by not choosing them, passed over them, and gave them justice. He let them go their own way, live out their sin, have their free will, have their own way, and they will pay for their own sin. That's the flip side of positive election. The Bible teaches this all over the place. We don't have time because we have a lot to do, so we're just going to look here, and then we're going to look at one of the most hated chapters in the Bible. Anyone know? Romans 9, of course. I didn't even have to tell you. So, Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. Blessed be the God. This is Paul the Apostle. Wrote the 13 uh, most popular letters of the New Testament, I'll say. Uh, Not maybe in... in, uh, They're equally important in God's Word, but I think that Paul's 13 letters are the most popular letters in the New Testament. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places 
even as he, this is God the Father in Jesus, chose us in him, the him is Jesus, when before the foundation of the world. So before the world was created, before anything came to be, before God even said, let there be light, this text, Ephesians 1.3, is telling us that God the Father chose some for salvation. And the choosing was in Jesus, connected to Jesus, united to Jesus. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What would that result in? That we should be holy and blameless before him. The result of this choosing would be that those chosen ones would become holy and blameless. In other words, not totally depraved. We would come out of our depravity into a state of holiness and into a state of a blessedness. In love, he predestined us for what? For adoption. Now, this image is that he chose some to be his children, sons and daughters. Adoption. He, in love, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Notice whose will is involved in the choosing. According to the purpose of his will. What will this ultimately result in? What will these ones be doing forever? Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The beloved there is Jesus. So this one to one, three to six teaches us that God the Father has chosen a certain amount of people and they would become his children. And these children would become holy and blameless before him by the uniting of them to Jesus Christ. His perfection becomes their perfection. His holiness becomes their holiness. His status with the Father becomes their status with the Father. His being loved as a son becomes our being loved as sons and daughters. United to Jesus, we were chosen for this, who find ourselves believing and trusting in Jesus. If we jump down to verse 11 and 12, we can see it again. In him, the in him is always pervasive in this first chapter here. And the, the hymn is Jesus. In him, so we could say in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that, this is what will result, this is the purpose, he did this because we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Why did he do it like this? So that those who are the children would receive an inheritance and that his glory would be praised by us. You see it there two times. To the praise of his glorious grace. Grace is unearned, undeserved, demerited favor for you. And it always comes through Jesus Christ. All right, now we're going to move on to probably the most hated chapter in the Bible. Um, I don't hate it. I love it. I love Romans 9. Is Romans 9 hard to stomach? Yes. Have people twisted it to say what it doesn't? Yes. That doesn't mean we should avoid it. Okay? I've been teaching Romans 9 for some 12 to 15 years now, and I have found it very securing for my soul rather than disturbing. 
So we don't have time to teach the whole thing, but what we can do is at least take 10 through 18. Okay, so I'm going to give you some background as we go, and uh, you'll see how this relates. Paul has already, as Paul, same writer to the church at Ephesus, has wrote to the church at Rome. And in the beginning of chapter 9, uh, it follows what is known as the golden chain of redemption, which comes right after your, your favorite verse in the Bible, which is what? Thank you. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's your favorite verse. And then what comes next is, I'm going to summarize it. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Right into Romans 9. And then Paul says, I have unceasing anguish for my fellow Jewish men, my countrymen, my people, because they are not trusting in Jesus and rather they are rejecting him. And then he goes into showing how this is of God's design, his design, that the Jewish people would reject their savior. And so that's what he's arguing in Romans 9. He's arguing that though he has a passion and a desire for his own ethnicity, his own ethnic group, his people, the Jewish people, to become Christians, God has designed for them for this time and season not to. You'd be like, that's messed up. That's why Romans 9 is so hated. And so we're going to break in with the illustration of Paul using Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel the forefathers of the Jewish people or God's chosen people. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, you remember that story? You have Jacob and Esau in the womb and Esau is, is hairy and red and he, he comes out and Jacob's holding onto his heel as he gives birth and there's this weird thing happening and while she's pregnant, there's this, this pain that she's having and she goes and inquires of the Lord and he's like, two nations are in your womb and they're warring and it's this epic pregnancy. Though they were not yet born, this is prior to birth, or had done nothing, either good or bad, no actions taken by either, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, some translations say stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls she, Rebecca, was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now that takes a bit of explaining. What's happening is Jacob was chosen by God, and this text says before there was any actions or intentions, before there was even birth, God said this is how it's going to be. It's not based on, it's not conditioned on God's choosing anything in them. It's based on God's purpose and God's choice. Look, not because of works, but because, we're told why, because of him who calls. She was told, Rebecca, the older is going to serve the younger. And that's a reversal of how the culture did it. The oldest was the, uh, you know, the firstborn, the, in, the main inheritor, the ruler of the family, the one who received the father's blessing. 
And he said, no. God said, no, it's going to be the other way around. It's going to be the reverse. And Paul says this is an illustration of God's choosing, and it's unconditional. It's not based on any conditions in the person. And it's before they were born. Now, look at verse 14 with me. Now, well, some of you are wondering about verse 13. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That's one of, I think, the, the, the hardest texts for some of us to swallow. What it means is that in that God chose Jacob and did not choose Esau for the blessing of the people of God to come through that line, to inherit God himself, to inherit God and his glorious blessings, that could be called hate. But we know that God is love in his essence. It's a part of who he is. It's not something he does. John tells us in 1 John that God is love, just like God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So the idea here, it's not that God creates a person in his image and then inflicts hate on him. The idea is that when he chooses Jacob for blessing, the opposite could be called hate. Now, when you look at the, also, if you, if you run out Esau's line, if you run out his attitude towards God, if you run out his attitude, and you look, so you look in the text and you, you trace it, Esau cared nothing for God. Esau cared nothing for his blessing as firstborn. Esau cared nothing for him being uh, the, the inheritor of the blessing. And, and his line, the Edomites, were a wicked people. Okay? Now, that being said, that's what happens when God leaves you to your depravity. God didn't make Esau do or hate or have any of that attitude. No, he had that on his own. But God allowed him to stay there and to let it progress. And so, one argument I would make very quickly is that God never puts fresh unbelief or fresh evil into anyone's heart that they might act it out. Rather, what he does is he chooses to pull back his mercy and grace, and he allows the depravity to express itself more freely. And that's what he did for Esau, and not what he did for Jacob. And so Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28, we're told what God does as judgment for rejecting him. He gave them over, he gave them over, he gave them over. If God gives you over to your own purposes, to your own desires, to your own worship of false gods, you will express your depravity to a degree that it will destroy you and it will incur the wrath of God. Let's move on. What shall we say then? Verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? Now, I anticipate your arguments all the time. And the fact that Paul anticipated that someone would hear what he just said and say, that's not fair, that's injustice, means that if you thought that, then we're interpreting it the right way. Right? If in your mind you're like, that is not fair, Paul's anticipating you thinking that. And he's going to answer your question. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Some translations say, God forbid. 
It is not in God to be unjust or to do injustice in any way, shape, or form. For he says to Moses, now look at this verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. We could stop there. What is mercy? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Right? If some be merciful to me, a sinner. Mercy is this idea of I deserve punishment, I deserve wrath, I deserve hell, if we're being honest. And then mercy is not getting what we deserve. So God says, look, if someone deserves mercy, that doesn't make sense, does it? Deserves mercy? No. No one deserves mercy, do they? If you need mercy, then you're in a place of need. And so it's not wrong for God to be merciful to some and not merciful to others. And rather, let others have justice. It's actually that God would show mercy that we might say, that's not fair. Why are you being merciful? That's not just. That accusation could be made. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, that implies a need for compassion, doesn't it? You're in need of compassion. And God's saying, Paul's saying here, quoting what God said to Moses in the Exodus, when he is told to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. God has the right to show compassion or not, to show mercy or not. It's his prerogative. It's within his godness. So then, verse 16, it depends not on human will. It has nothing to do with our choosing, human will, or exertion. Okay, exertion is you exerting energy. Now, that could be translated not of him who wills or runs. It's not about you. It's not about your effort. It's not about your willing. It's not about your choosing. But on God who has mercy. Do you see the emphasis here? It's not about you. It's not about Jacob. It's not about Esau. It's about God. God is the one who is the star of the show here. We are the recipients. That's all. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, verse 17, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now we know what happened in that story, right? The Pharaoh was enslaving the Jews and he was terribly mistreating them and he himself was worshiped as a God. And when Moses came to Pharaoh and said, the God of the Israelites says, let my people go so that they may come and worship me. He's like, who is this God? Who is the Lord? As if, don't you know who I am? <laughs> A mere man thinking he can take on the God of the universe who holds the very breath of his lungs. And so God says, listen, for this very purpose, so that I might display my power in you. This is why I've let you come into the power, God-like status that you have, Pharaoh. And so he unleashes the ten plagues on him. And even at that, Pharaoh will not relent. 
will he? And he dashes off with all of his army and drowns in the Red Sea after 10 plagues. Now look at verse 18, somewhat of a conclusion. So then, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. Now that comes from the Exodus text where Pharaoh hardens his heart, but then sometimes God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And he tells Moses he's going to do this ahead of time. He said, Pharaoh is not going to let you go because I am going to harden his heart. So we could ask the question, wait a minute, so so you're saying that God hardens people's hearts and then other people he has mercy on. Is that what? Yes, that's exactly what it says. Now, how is very important. If you believe that God needs to, again, put fresh evil, fresh resistance, fresh unbelief into someone's heart so that they reject him and stiff arm him, you've got it wrong. No, you're in that position by birth. That's what total depravity means. That you stiff arm God by default that you are dead in your trespasses and sins, following the prince of the power of the air, following your thoughts and desires. Like the rest, you're by nature an object of wrath. By your very sinful nature. And so God doesn't need to cause anyone to not believe or come to him. They will not come to him. John three nineteen. Men love darkness instead of light and will not come to the light. Why? Lest their deeds be exposed. People will not come to God because they want to stay in their sin. They have a love affair with the darkness. And if they come into the light, they will have to give up their sin. And they say, no way, I will hold on to my sin before I come to God. And if God doesn't break you out of that place, you will continue to be more hard and more hard and more hard. And so by his passing you over with mercy and grace, you are hardened. Now, interestingly, when you look at the Pharaoh account, the way, the active way that he hardened Pharaoh's heart was he kept relenting the judgment. In other words, he gave him mercy and grace. When Pharaoh would say, I repent, please tell the Lord to stop. He would stop and that the stopping of the judgment would actually harden his heart. And then he would say, I'm not letting him go. Isn't that interesting? God hardened Pharaoh's heart with mercy and grace. And Pharaoh, left to himself without a heart change by God himself, continued to middle finger God the whole ten plagues right into the Red Sea to death. Now, I use that strong language because you don't think total depravity is that serious. And maybe you want to take a little bit of credit for your coming to Jesus. But you cannot. And you should not. I would exhort you, you must not. So let's move on because we're running out of time. Limited atonement, there's unconditional election. Now listen, you guys realize that we could spend months on this question. I spared you by doing it in two weeks, okay? Limited atonement, here's the definition. The reconciliation of God and sinners through the work of Jesus Christ. What about the limited part? Limited in intention, God's intention, and limited in effect 
only to those whom God has chosen for salvation. So the atonement has a limiting in that God designed the atonement, which is the reconciliation of God and sinners through Jesus' person and work on the cross and his resurrection. God designed that work of Jesus to have a limited effect on those who would believe. And so everyone who's not a universalist, universalist means everyone will be saved, you know, Jesus dying on the cross covers every single person, whether they believe in him or not, and the heaven will be full of every person who ever populated earth. If you're not a universalist, you believe in a limited atonement. You do. If, if I was to say, whoever believes will be saved, we are limiting the atonement and its effects to only those who believe. And what limited atonement simply says is, yeah, only those who believe will receive the effects of the atonement, and only those who believe will be those who were chosen before the foundation of the world. And so God's intention in sending Jesus was to die for a specific people, his people. All right, let's see if the Bible teaches that. Matthew one twenty one. This is G- the birth of Jesus. This is the Christmas story. This is Joseph ready to divorce Mary because she's with child and he hasn't been with her. And so Gabriel, the archangel, comes to Joseph in a dream and says, She, Mary, will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Not all people, not everyone, not make the possibility for salvation for everyone. No, his people, this is getting done. Jesus is going to accomplish his purpose. He is going to accomplish God's purpose in sending Jesus. John 17, I'm sorry this text is small, but can you imagine three whole slides? It was a mercy by putting them all in one for you. So John 17 is one of the deepest texts or chapters in the whole Bible. It's a prayer of Jesus to God the Father, and it's either happening in the upper room or as the Last Supper, upper room, or as they're leaving the upper room to go to the Mount of Olives uh, to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, okay? And Jesus is praying, and he is praying some amazing things. Look at this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, Remember, this is right before the Garden of Gethsemane, right before the beatings and the scourgings and the cross. Literally, it's the next event. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh. Okay, Jesus here in this prayer says that God the Father gave him authority, rulership over all, all flesh. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So does Jesus have authority over all flesh? Yeah, that's what what he just prayed. But that authority gives Jesus the right to give eternal life to who? To all whom you, Father, have given me. Do you see that? That's... That's a specific people there. Jesus will save his people from their sin. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh. To do what? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. 
And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I love that verse 3. You want, it, you want to know what eternal life's like? You can know God personally tonight and get a taste of eternal life. To know intimately God. It's amazing. Let's jump down to verse 6 and 7. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. Notice the specific people there. I have manifested your name, Father, to the people whom you gave me, specific people, out of the world. Verse 9. I am praying for them, those specific people. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. They are yours. And now let's jump down to verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, friends, those of you who find yourselves united to Jesus tonight, that verse 24 is a glorious verse for you. Jesus has a desire to bring his people into his presence to see his unveiled glory that he had before he created anything. And this world is glorious enough when you look out at it and study it, flip on National Geographic and just look at what he has made and know that this is one small planet amidst billions and trillions of planets and galaxies and stars. We're going to see his glory. <laughs> and he wants that glory to be seen by his people, his specific people. How about John 3, 35 to 36? Now, what's happening in John 3 is Nicodemus uh, is in conversation with Jesus for the first half. And then the, the second half of John 3, it breaks off into John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. And right here, we can't quite tell from the text if John the Baptist is saying this or if John the apostle who wrote the gospel of John is saying this. But either way, look at what it's saying. Ready? The Father loves the Son. This is God the Father loving Jesus. And has given him, I'm sorry, given all things into his hands. Now, notice that. Remember the last text. You have given him authority over all flesh. And this text is, the Father loves the Son and has given all things over to Jesus. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Yes and amen. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but what? But the wrath of God remains on him. Remains. It's there already, and it will remain. Now listen, what does the atonement do? It removes the wrath of God and reconciles the sinner to God. Therefore, if God doesn't apply the atonement to you, the wrath remains. In other words, if you're not a Christian, the atonement is not applied to you, and the wrath is on you still. You need to come to Jesus. You do not want to meet with the wrath of God on Judgment Day. You must come to Jesus. 
Again, we could show many, many more texts, but I'm running out of time. Irresistible grace, what is it? T-U-L, now we're on the I, irresistible grace. An act of God's grace by which he overcomes the sinner's hard-hearted resistance to his outward call. The outward call is the gospel. It's what Romans 1.16 says is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel call goes out what has been said promiscuously to everyone and anyone. Come to Jesus. He will receive you. You must receive him and turn from your sin. That goes out to all. But there are some who respond to the call. Many are called. Finish it. Few are chosen. But when God decides that that outward call will be matched with an inward call, the resistance is overcome. To turn from sin to him through the work of Jesus Christ. John 6, 28 to 29. All right, now here's, here's what's happening in this context. Jesus has just fed uh, 5,000 men plus women and children. A lot of people, maybe 20,000 people. He has gone across the lake, and those who had eaten showed up in the morning for breakfast, and they are hounding him for another sign. And their argument is, okay, you're claiming to be the Messiah here, but Moses fed the children of Israel for 40 years in the desert. Can you do it again for breakfast? That's the context. You read it for yourself. It's, it's selfish. We are only here for the food. And then Jesus says this crazy thing. Oh, you want food? My flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood shall have eternal life. And people are like, what? Why'd you go cannibalistic on us, Jesus? Now, now we know that he is spiritually speaking, but this causes all kinds of unbelief in the crowd. Now, he's shaking out the crowd at this point. That's what he's doing. And there's all kinds of murmuring and unbelief and people walking away and people upset at him, and we enter the context. Then he said to them, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? This is the crowd. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent, me. This is your work. You want to do some work? This is your work. Believe in him whom he has sent. Okay? So he has told them what the work they should be doing is. Believe. Okay? We all there? Believe. Jump down to verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And he who comes to me I will never cast out. Now he's progressing to unbelief. You have seen me, and you won't believe. But then he affirms that all those whom the Father has given him will come. He will get his people. Then when we jump down to verse 43 and 44, look at this. Jesus answered them. They're grumbling among themselves about him. Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now let's briefly look at 44, real quick, look. No one can, that's an ability word, you either can or you can't, I can't breathe underwater, 
I don't think you can either. Well, Jesus is saying no one can do something. What, what can or can't they do? They can't come to him. No one can come to me unless something happens. What? Unless the Father who sent me draws them. There's that irresistible grace. And what will happen when the Father draws? I will raise him up, resurrect him, her, on the last day. Now, what you need to know about that word draw there is it's translated <laughs> drag and it's translated um, haul. Look at, the, look at the same word here in John 21. This is when they, that Jesus is resurrected on the beach and, and he says to them, throw your net over the other side and, and, and you'll, you'll get a catch. And so he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were unable to, there's our word, haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Haul. Now imagine a, a, a net that's so full of fish that you have to have four or five guys on it, hauling it, dragging it, pulling it, wrestling with it into the boat. And if you don't think that's the sense of the word, look at it in Acts 16, 19. This is Paul and Silas. But when her owners, this is when they cast out the demon of the, the demon-possessed girl in Philippi. Remember, she was making her owners a lot of money by fortune-telling. And Paul said, come out in the name of Jesus. And she, she gave up the demon. <laughs> and the owners of the girl were upset because now they can't make money off her fortune-telling. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and, there's our word, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Okay? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me hauls him, drags him, draws him. This is the idea that God, as you resist him, overcomes your resistance, overcomes my resistance. As I ran from him and stiff-armed him and said, I will have my sin, thank you. He says, not for long and no more. That's irresistible grace. And there are so many texts that teach it. We don't have time, but here's another one. Just after John 6, progressing in that state of unbelief. But there are some of you who do not believe. Okay, here's the context. Unbelief. Jesus is still talking to this crowd. There's some of you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who do not believe or did not believe, and who it was who would betray him, Judas. Look at 65. And he said, in response to their unbelief, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted, given him by the Father. You have to be given the ability to come, or you will, by your free will, resist. And this drawing, this overcoming, is the grace of God making you spiritually alive. It's called regeneration. It's called the new birth. And when Jesus said something about it to Nicodemus, Nicodemus said, how can this be? And he said, the wind blows where it wills. You can't see where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. That word wind is the word for spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit does this and you don't get to control the spirit. 
This is why I don't stand up here on Sunday nights and plead with you to come forward. I don't manipulate you into believing. I don't, I don't try to guilt you into you know, coming to Jesus because I don't have that kind of power. Only God has the power to save you. My responsibility is to give you the opportunity and to release the power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. Now, this verse is a helpful one. Paul and Barnabas are at Antioch in Pisidia, a different Antioch than the one that they were launched from to do the missionary work. This is the one in Pisidia. And they did their normal missionary strategy. They go into the synagogue. They, as traveling rabbis, they get an opportunity to speak. And they go into Psalm chapter 2, or they go into Isaiah 53, or they go into a text that is clearly Jesus. And then they show Jesus from the Old Testament. Well, they did that. And as they did that, they were like, come back next week and speak these things again on the next Sabbath. They come back the next Sabbath, and the whole city, Jew and Gentile, gathered to hear Paul and um, and Barnabas speak, and the Jews get jealous, and they start speaking against what Paul and Barnabas were just preaching the week before that they wanted so badly to hear. And so Paul says to these Jewish now unbelievers, okay, it is our obligation to speak the gospel to you first, but since you don't believe, we now go to the Gentiles. And they speak the gospel to the Gentiles, and verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is the gospel. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now notice what that didn't say. That didn't say, and as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. No. The appointing caused the, or I'm sorry, the belief. You see it? And the word of the Lord, the gospel, was spreading throughout the whole region. So as Paul and Barnabas here preach the gospel, the effectual grace of God, the irresistible grace of God, makes the ones who were appointed believe. One more. This is Lydia. This is also in... Eddie, why are you laughing, dude? You want me to quit? I'll quit. I'll quit. All right. I got more. I got more. Phillips is back there like, no, please, no more. I've had enough. We, we still got perseverance, and I, I do see what time it is. All right. So uh, on the Sabbath day, this is Paul going out to, to do his normal missionary strategy. He went outside and, and to the riverside. Where there was supposed to be a place of prayer, we sat down to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Look at this. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, Luke, who wrote Acts, didn't have to add that detail, but he did for us. In other words, the only way Lydia paid attention to Paul, and and she was saved and baptized right after this, so she believed. The only way that she was able to believe and then be baptized in her household, Paul says, or Luke says, that because God opened her heart, aka moved on her with irresistible grace, opened up her heart, caused her to be born again. 
All right. Perseverance of the saints. Let's hurry. The last one, the P. The active keeping grace of God by which he enables the elect to continue trusting in Christ and not abandoning the faith. I love the perseverance of the saints because this teaching is that God keeps me believing. God keeps you believing. You should love this. Quickly, 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. Now, this is a good bridge because it starts with irresistible grace and then moves to the perseverance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us, he caused us by mercy to be born again. I don't know how much clearer it could be. To a living hope. This hope is alive. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's the gospel. What does that do? To an inheritance. We get an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now watch this. Who by God's power, that's us, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. God's guarding you through your faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last days. You see this. You're being guarded so that you can receive the inheritance. And it's God's power that's guarding you. And his means is he's keeping you believing. That's what faith is. Faith is to trust. Faith is to believe. So his power is keeping your faith alive. It's keeping your hope alive. It's keeping you in. It's keeping you persevering. Because he caused you to be born again. John 10, 24 to 30. So the Jews were gathering around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? Again, Jesus in a hostile crowd. Or if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. If you're the Messiah, tell us. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. Why? Because you are not my sheep. It didn't say, you're not my sheep because you don't believe. Look at it. Verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. That's why you don't believe. My sheep, in contrast, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Amen. That's security. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. I and the Father are one. I love it. He's saying here, when I get my sheep in my hands, no one can pry my sheep out of my hands. No one can snatch them from me. And you know what that says to me? I can't even pry myself out of his hands. I love that. Why? Because the Father who is greater than all has given me to Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 Paul says to the Philippians, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work, who began the good work? God. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
All right, now we don't have time to do all this. I'm, I'm sparing you. Look at that. I just gave you a bunch of, of gifts there. Um, what we'll do is very quickly answer the last two questions and we're done. The last two questions are these. What should we do in response? We should not be afraid. We should not be afraid of two things. If we are believing, we should rest in the security that God has granted to us in Christ. However, you should also see if you're bearing fruit. What do I mean by that? I mean that there should be some evidence that you are God's children. There should be some heart change that produces some attitude and action change. The fruit of the Holy Spirit should be evident in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We are exhorted to make our calling and election sure. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. How do we do that? We look at our attitude and our actions. We look at the way that our lives are being lived and we see if there's evidence that we are the children of God and born again. However, we also, the only way we can be saved is to not clean your life up and do a bunch of good. The only thing we can do is look away from ourselves to him who hung on a cross. And so maybe tonight you're like, I don't know. I, I don't know. Look away from yourself to Jesus. Receive the gift of eternal life that he purchased for you on the cross. And if you do see fruit in your life, rest in the salvation that God has bought for you. Rest. And secondly, you should not be afraid to share the good news. Why? Because Jesus has all authority. And he will save all whom the Father has given him. And he chooses to use you and me as the means of sharing the good news, which is the outward call by which he inwardly calls. It's amazing. You should not be afraid to share the good news. Look at this. Acts 18 9 to 11, Paul's in Corinth. He's afraid to speak. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you or harm you, for I have many people in this city. I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months. So Paul was to keep speaking the gospel because God had people there that as Paul spoke the gospel to, they would be saved. And so he stayed. A year and six months, and God's people were saved. So we should not be afraid to share the gospel. We are not responsible to save people. Only God can, but we must share the good news. And that's a great relief to you, that you don't have to save people. You can't. That's not on you. Don't take that responsibility on yourself. And then lastly, how should this affect our attitude? Last question. It should make us humble to the dust. When we realize that this has nothing to do with us 
and that every step of the salvation process was all of God, you should not think yourself superior to anyone. Because if God not had shown grace to you, where would you be? And you see, if you don't take this position, then you have some place in you to hold on to, to put yourself above someone else. You believed, they didn't. You were smarter, they were dumber. You had more superiority, they had less superiority. You see, what this does is it cuts all boasting out from underneath everyone. And sadly, this is not true, but those who believe in uh, a reformed soteriology or, or the tulip or uh, you know, salvation by grace alone, they should be the most humble people on the planet. But often it's the opposite. And I find that sad. So our attitude should be one of, man, I have nothing to boast in or stand on but the grace of God that landed on me before the world began. It has nothing to do with me. It should humble us. And God gives grace to the humble and he opposes the proud. And so some of the way I've spoken to you tonight was, was a bit forceful. And the purpose there is to crush, if at all, any prideful structures in you that you have built that you are resting your own faith upon as if you're the one who has done this. You're the one who has believed. You get the credit. You get to boast before God in a sense, though I know you wouldn't say it like that. If it's not holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, on God, then it's some on you. And you get to take the credit.